There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. You ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you set yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industries, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor the fourth floor that is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75, 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you don't have a, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches they never change anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position 
to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, he'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. All right, words from Malcolm X. Uh, today, uh, well, today's It's My House podcast is titled Elmore Bowling, a state planning clinic. Live stream number is 619-768-2945. Once again, 619-768-2945. And once again, the title of today's podcast is Elmore Bowling, a state planning clinic. Now, originally, I titled this uh, Elmore Bowling, uh, and I had a question mark. Too successful. Was he too successful? Uh, and then, well, you'll see why I renamed it Elmore Bowling Estate Planning Clinic. It's something we can take a look at his um, his life, and we're going to have his daughter on, uh, Josephine uh, Bowling McCall. She's going to be on a, about three three or four minutes, and then we're going to hear his story, the backstory, uh, what happened to Elmore Bowling, what's going on now. And then how this, how we can apply uh, his success principles uh, into our lives, as well as how to protect what what we get once we get it. So we'll be back with her live in about three minutes. And now an exclusive first look at the upcoming documentary, 7 a.m. Because true economic science is a branch of military science. War and money go hand in hand. Most wars are fights so people can make more money, and war is money. That means what? That the European American is not about to prepare black children to compete with his children for control of the economic sector. It's not going to happen. So if black people want this science, we got to teach it, we got to study it, and we're going to have to make some mistakes in perfecting it because we're still babies in the water of global economic commerce. As African people, we are financially illiterate. So we should not be surprised that we're so economically backward because we were never taught how to be economically forward. Our education in America has not provided or prepared us to be able to compete with Europeans economically. The historically black college was designed to do what? Teach you how to work for white people. Public schools, charter schools, parochial schools, independent schools. What is the purpose of education in America for black children right now? To teach them how to make a living working for white people. But I don't want the kids coming to my school to be going to class thinking that I'm learning this so I can go and get paid by a white person. They're going to be empowered to start their own business 
when they leave that school, they're going to go into business. And why do we need our people to be self-sufficient? Because when you're not self-sufficient, you can't speak your mind. One of the biggest reasons why black people have been so cowardly in the post-civil rights movement, not standing up for ourselves, standing up for our children, standing up against police brutality, we're scared to lose our jobs. We have to work. We got kids. I can't talk about the racism on my job. I might lose it. So the reason why we're not speaking our mind is because we don't have economic freedom. As Mr. Garvey said, Marcus Garvey said, that a solid racial program must be built on a solid economic foundation. Show me your economic condition, and I'll show me your political condition. The political economy of the black community rests on the premise that because they do not make their own money, they are enslaved to Europeans. And as a result of that, they will never be able to do what needs to be done to carve out a future for their children because the hand that pays is also the hand that rules them. And once again, today's podcast is through the Elmore Bowling Estate Planning Clinic. Uh, last year, number 619-768-2945. Before we go into our live studio guest today, Josephine Bowling McCall, um, we want to give a little backstory, backstory of a backstory. We're going to go, because Elmore Bowling story takes place in Alabama. We're going to go to Memphis, Tennessee uh, with Memphis Ross. That story. This was the situation in 1892 when three young black men, Will Stewart, Calvin McDowell, and Thomas Moss, friends of Ida Wells, opened a grocery store in direct competition with a white-owned grocery across the street. The white grocer didn't like it much, and so there was a bad blood between the uh, white grocer and uh, the black grocery store. Uh, he went to the city officials and tried to get them to, or the county officials tried to get them to close it down, said that they were maintaining a nuisance. They were selling beer. And, and uh, one of the deputy sheriffs arrived. Now, they didn't have uniforms. They were in plain clothes. It's after dark. Now, you see some white folks with guns coming after you. Why? Uh, blacks fired on them. You had gunfire, and a deputy was wounded. At that point, the truth must have come out, and so uh, the blacks stopped firing, and the deputies went in and arrested all they could find in the grocery store. Then they went out and arrested everybody in the neighborhood they could find. And so they, they threw 20 to 30 people in jail. Within hours... Rumors of a black revolt spread throughout the county. A black militia was disarmed. The three grocers were dragged from their cells by a mob and murdered. The killers were never brought to justice. Everybody in town knew and loved Tommy. An exemplary young man. He was married and the father of one little girl, Maureen, whose godmother I was. He and his wife, Betty, were the best friends I had in town. He owned his little home, and having saved his money, he went into the grocery business with the same ambition a young white man would have had. One of the morning papers 
held back its edition in order to supply its readers with the details of that lynching. It said that Thomas Moss begged for his life for the sake of his wife and his child and his unborn baby. That Calvin McDowell got hold of one of the guns of the lynchers and because they couldn't loosen his grip, a shot was fired into his closed fist. There's a strong belief among us that the criminal court judge himself was one of the lynchers. The black community of Memphis was stunned. Wells retaliated with her pen. She wrote an editorial. The city of Memphis has demonstrated that neither character nor standing avails the Negro if he dares to protect himself against the white man or become his rival. The white mob could help itself to ammunition without pay, but the order was rigidly enforced against the selling of guns to Negroes. Now, this is something that touched her not just as a woman who was sensitive to the injustices were being uh, imposed on blacks, but uh, it was a personal uh, note in it all that uh, I think uh, forced her to ask the question, am I, am I willing to stand up to uh, uh, whoever may oppose me in trying to, in, in fighting for racial justice? Wells chose to fight. She also chose her weapons. There's therefore only one thing left that we can do. Save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. Hundreds disposed of their property and left. Leading pastors took their whole congregations with them as they, too, went west. She said, leave. You know, this is that, that black migration to the, to the Middle West, the Kansas and Oklahoma migration. Go to Kansas. Go to Oklahoma. And many blacks left. And I think that's another reason that the uh, power structure was angry with her, because she understood the economic and political strategy that they were using to intimidate blacks. And what she was saying is, you don't have to stay here and be intimidated. Leave. And so the white businesses were in a panic that blacks had left. They're buying everything on the installment plan, and they had left everything. So people, the, the people were left. The restaurants were going out of business um, because all the black patronage was was going. And you talk about the power of the pen and of her leadership to be the force behind thousands of black people. Leaving and whatever Memphis represented to them was the only thing that they knew. It was where their roots were, where they were working, where their families were. And 6,000 people packed up their bags, went to the Oklahoma Territory. Of course, uh, Ida Wells had gone there previously to sort of scout the place. To get black people to leave everything and go to a place that's unknown. They don't 
don't know anything that's, that's out there. The weather is different. The circumstances are different. It's, you know, the towns are, many of them yet to be established. And she did that when she was just a young woman. Among those who remained in Memphis, Wells helped to organize a boycott aimed at the newly installed trolley system. Six weeks after the lynching of Thomas Moss and his partners, the superintendent and treasurer of the City Railroad Company came into the office of the Free Speech and asked us to use our influence with the colored people to get them to ride on the streetcars again. When I asked why they came to us, the reply was that colored people had been their best patrons and that there had been a marked falling off of their patronage. I asked them what they thought was the cause. They said they didn't know. They had heard Negroes were afraid of electricity. When they left the office, I wrote this interview for the free speech and told the people to keep up the good work and to keep on staying off the cars. She moved to a strategy of organizing. That is, she wanted to mobilize black people, women's groups in particular, but other kinds of black mobilization, which signaled that it wasn't only a matter of the mirror image. You don't just get people to see that they're wrong and that change. She saw that you had to get uh, some organizational apparatus in place. Okay. Uh, today's podcast, once again, is titled Elmore Bowling Estate Planning Clinic. Uh, 619-768-2945 is the last screen number. Now, I had to play that backstory of uh, what happened in Memphis, uh, Memphis Moss murders, um, and, and bring out some distinctions uh, so you can better grasp the Elmore Bowling story. And then you can link it to other, other stories that are, that are similar. As you heard, um, many... Uh, they just said blacks migrated or moved to other areas. More accurately, what they should say, in my opinion, is wealthy black folk left those areas. And if you read the the um, the works of Ida B. Wells, not all. But a good majority, probably what, 60, 70%, if not 80%, of the lynchings or killings that happened to black folk back during that time period, they just weren't any ordinary black folk. They were typically prominent or wealthy or rich black folk. But the Memphis Moss murders, uh, they had a successful grocery store uh, that was, you know, the, the, the white stores, they never liked it. Competition, economic competition. Economic competition. So let's go to Elmore Bowling. Elmore Bowling, well, you know what, his daughter's here today. Uh, Josephine Bowling, Nicole, she's here, so I'm going to let you tell his story. Um, and she can tell it better than anybody else. So let's go to the phone lines here. 
Miss Bowling, uh, I meant Miss McCall, rather. Uh, good yes. morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, share with us who your father was, Elmore Bowling. My father, Elmo Bowling, was born in 1908 and had become a successful businessman. He started out with a mule and wagon, bought a T-model car and converted it to a truck, and after that, purchased several track-trailer trucks. So he was in business for himself. He had a farm, was employing about 35 or 40 people. And he had a store on Highway 80. And Highway 80 is most well-known for being the trail from Selma to Montgomery. That's the historic trail. So his store was on Highway 80. Uh, In addition to the store and the farm and the trucking business, he also was a restaurateur where he carried food items to people at different churches. And finally, what really was a large threat to the status quo, he started a milk business where the local residents were able to send milk to a dairy in Montgomery, some 25, 30 miles away, and they began receiving milk checks. Therefore, they were not solely dependent on what they could make working for the white farmers. In 1947, uh, he was killed. He was shot six times in the front with a pistol and once in the back with a shotgun. And the resulting investigation by the NAACP and my research proved that he was lynched because he was too successful as a Negro farmer. Mm. Now, you had, you had five businesses. I think I counted five. Yes. Um, boy, that's something else. Um he was only, what, 39? 39 um, years old. When it, 39 years old when that, when that happened. Mm. Now, what was, what was his uh, educational, formal educational background? Let's put it that way. My father was completely illiterate. He never learned to read or write. Okay. You know, now, I, I understand what you're saying. Um but when I listen to uh, a particular story like his, because if you look at that word literacy, there are different forms of literacy. Obviously, your father was business literate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anybody that can put together five successful businesses that can that can operate, you know, all at the same time. Obviously, the man was business literate. And uh, I mean, you can probably even open up the Elmore Bowling Business School uh, because you were right there. You saw all this stuff growing up. So reading and writing is one thing, but uh, he was business literate that he knew how to start a business, how to maintain a business, how to operate a business, and then 
whatever what whatever skill sets he did not possess, he was smart enough to hire somebody who knew how to read or write. Because there's a lot of people out here uh, today in 2018 and beyond that they have graduate degrees from Ivy League schools. They can read and write and got all these fancy sound degrees, but they're living at the Salvation Army or in a shelter or something like that. So there's different forms of literacy, um, so to speak. Yeah, I agree Um, that he had a strong business acumen. And one other trait that I failed to mention, that he was a philanthropist. One of the interviewees, and many of them said the same thing, but one in particular made this statement. The only reason Elmore Bowling would not help a person is that the person did not ask. So he was a philanthropist as well. Mm. <clears throat> Remarkable. Well, now, how many how many children uh, did your father have? I'm the youngest of seven. He had seven children. The oldest was 15 when he was murdered, and I was five. Okay. So this man, uh, without a so-called formal education, you know, it, it seems to me that the more formal education you get, particularly through the public school system, maybe not all public school systems, it seems like you're better off. Uh, matter of fact, give us some of your background. I mean, when he was growing up, what was his childhood like? If he, if he shared any of that with you, because uh, he was learning. Importantly, was well, one of the things that he learned was that he never wanted to work for anyone. He always wanted to be self-employed. Our family never sharecropped, and what is significant about that is that. We leased land and paid for our existence rather than uh, trying to raise a crop and then getting part of the the ship. Well, that's what sharecropping means. So we never sharecropped, so that gave my father a sense of independence. And this went back as far as his great-grandfather. And that was the basis of his heritage. Everybody was in business of some kind. And one of the main businesses back then was um, uh, illegal uh, liquor. Everybody had a steel, a whiskey steel. So um, Mm. my my parents always had some kind of business going as well as being independent. All right. Uh, I'm pitching the idea now, Elmore Bowling Business School. (laughs) Because you're putting out some information that uh, that, that people, uh, I, I put, and I've college very good, but I it's, I think that has its limits. Because um, your father had a, a practical um, a practical education, one that you can actually use and get some results from. Uh, now, with let's say the family home, uh, well, I mean, you guys live on a farm or. Any, or do you live in the city, rural area or what? This was in Lowndes County, which is a very, very rural area, and it is still a rural area today. It's, it's uh, one of the poorest counties in the nation. Hmm. 
Okay. Now, the, the family house, was it, um, I mean, what size lot was it on? A small lot or was it on an acre or acres? How was that? My father had properties that was known then as the Tyson uh, property, and it spanned many, many acres. In fact, he was renting some of the houses on the property to other people who actually worked for him in either the store or farming or driving trucks. So um, our house was on this large piece of land um, and also large piece of land that was also being farmed and had rental property on it. So we had a large amount of property. Now, with rental property on it? Yes, yes. He actually was renting some property to two people who uh, worked for him and lived on the property. In fact, one of the killers uh, was upset because when my father got that property, his mother was living in one of the houses, and she had to move. So when his white mother had to move because this black man achieved the property, he was one of the ones who was indicated in the murder, but he was not uh, arrested. And see, when you mentioned the two rental properties, see, well, then we had to up those businesses that your father had to uh, five, six, seven, at least seven, <laughs> seven business, because a rental property is a business in itself. Um, today, for people just tuning in, uh, we're talking to Josephine Bowling uh, McCall, and she is the daughter and youngest child of Elmore Bowling. On uh, today's uh, podcast, it's called Elmore Bowling Estate Planning Clinic. Uh, Elmore Bowling uh, had little or no, well, very little, I guess. I, I think I read on the internet, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, his parents or your grandparents enrolled him in school when he was 13? Yes. And he okay, was, now, that was his first uh, ever sight into a classroom. And since he was so much larger than the other first graders, he dropped out and never went back to school. Okay. All right. Um, and that just reminds me of the film. I mentioned this last week or the week before last people. You can go to Amazon or go online, maybe uh, YouTube films. There's a film based on a true story out of Africa, Kenya, Africa. Uh, it's titled The First Grader about a man who was in his 80s, and he and Kenya had some special program. Anyway, he enrolled in first grade in his 80s. So getting back to your father, so at 13, your your grandparents enrolled him in school, and then he just felt self-conscious. But he got his education in another way because he had to know something to start start these businesses up uh, and support a family. Now, your mother, what what role did she play uh, in the the family businesses as well as the children? Uh, <clears throat> my mother actually uh, ran the store while he ran the trucking business. Uh, my mom 
education span only went to the sixth grade. And since she was not able to go to a higher level, she stayed in the sixth grade three years until the teacher finally said, you know, she was so much larger than the other kids. The teacher asked her not to come back. So my mom had a sixth grade education and was a very, very supportive uh, person. And she, too, had a lot of wisdom and how she operated the business. One of the things that everybody needs to know is that as they operated the store, if people came in and needed things, they would allow them to have it on credit. And if they could not pay, my father and mother always forgave the debt. So she, too, operated from the same principles that my father did in regards to being a philanthropist. Uh, my mom was a, a great cook, and they sold the food that she cooked on church grounds. One of the things that my father did, I mentioned, he transported uh, cattle, but he also transported people. On Sundays, uh, in Lowndes County at that time, churches only met twice a month. So my father would have them at a different church every month, every Sunday, I'm sorry. And my mom would cook food, and the food was available for the parishioners. So, therefore, they were increasing the parishioners' size for the different churches in the community and also earning money at the same time. And one of the most profitable uh, products that they had was ice cream. And the reason ice cream was so profitable for them is because at that time, refrigeration wasn't available. So ice cream was a delicacy, and it was something that they could not get a hold of. So my mom and father sold ice cream at all of the uh, different churches, and that was a very, very profitable venture. What was your mother's name? Bertha. Bertha May. Uh-huh. I'll... Family name well, that, is now. That, okay. okay. Well, that's all I need for now. I'm going to alter my picks. That they open up the Elmore and Bertha Bowling Business School because I, I think we're up to ten businesses. All right. So <laughs> here's people with, I mean, a first grade dropout, and I mean that in a good way. And the mother went to like maybe sixth grade. Yeah. And here they got, they got 10 successful businesses. So these people, your parents were business literate. Let's go to, now, the, for the people just tuning in, Elmore Bowling was killed for being too successful. We're going to go into that in a moment. But at, he was only 39 when he passed. So with seven children, he had set up generational wealth by the time he passed. Now, the children, how were the children involved uh, with these businesses? Well, that's a very important question because since my father and mother had no education, they took the two oldest boys and placed them in school in Montgomery. Uh, okay. Since Lowndes County school system operated only about four months out of a year, and then you had to stop in time to pick cotton or whatever, they decided they wanted us, the children, to have a better education. So my father and mother put the two 
oldest boys in school in Montgomery, they came home on weekends when the store was doing its after-hours businesses. Uh, they always had a, a party at the store where uh, they had fish fries. So those boys came home and helped to clean fish and helped helped in that business. But on Monday mornings, they were back in school in Montgomery. So the the store that we had was being used for other venues. Um, people were getting married in there. Um, it whatever the need for a re- recreational facility that the store was being used for that as well. Okay. Um, now, were all the children involved, including you, because you were young, you were the youngest. In the family businesses? Oh, oh, you're asking, were all the kids involved in the business? Well, let's yeah. take my fourth oldest brother. My father called him Cowboy, and he had that name because when my father transported cattle to Montgomery to be sold, whenever the cattle were too puny and undernourished looking, the owners of the stockyard didn't want those, so they would sell them to my father for one dollar. My father would bring all of the undernourished animals home, and cowboy would suckle them with a baby bottle. So he had a job, too. Everybody had something to do uh, in in the business, I would say, except Except me, and like I said, I was five, and my other brother was seven. We probably did not have anything to do. My sister was supposed to be the water girl. She had to take water mm-hmm. to the field hands when they needed uh, water. So um, the two in Montgomery were in school, and then the third oldest brother was very, very apt with numbers. So he ran the store with my mother, and then the like the I said the fourth oldest was the cowboy, and he took care of all the the undernourished cattle, and then that then then left it just the younger two of us who were probably not able to do anything but look and wish, and and try to churn butter. Okay. Um. Now, uh, let's see. The uh, now, you uh, uh I forget. Now, what are you doing? You you started a uh, oh, two, before I even get to that question, are any of those businesses still in existence today? No, and see that is what lynching is about. Uh, that is why Brian Stevenson has dedicated the lynching memorial and the um, legacy museum. Once a person is lynched. The entire community is terrorized, and no one wants to be take a part of those businesses. So all of the businesses that my father had uh, were eliminated. The people who were working for him returned to work for the, the white plantation owners. The drivers who were driving his trucks went back to work for the white plantation owners because the, my mom sold off the trucks because nobody wanted to... Uh, Nobody wanted to take a chance on what happened to my dad happening to them. So all of the businesses diminished. And my mother and us kids went from 
prosperity to poverty almost overnight. Mm. And that's why I, I retitled this podcast today, Elmore Bowling Estate Planning Clinic, because one of the things I want to talk about a little bit later in this podcast is as you're building a business, regardless of color, but I guess in the United States particularly if you're a color, estate planning is looking at looking into the future, all right, because uh, as you mentioned, when he was shot, as many other people were lynched, you know, from Black Wall Street, once again, the majority of people, not all, but the majority of people that were lynched during the, you know, the lynching period here in the United States were wealthy people, including wealthy African-Americans. Here's a man, uh, he and his wife had family, because they were family businesses. Had about 10 businesses, rental properties, cow, I mean, cattle, uh, food distribution. Uh, they were in the transportation Ballers, as we would call them today. All right. Um, very, very business literate. All right. And that's why it, it's, I call it more classism because what you're doing, you, you had a lot of poor people that happened to be white that didn't like to see these prosperous black people. So this lynching period, like I said, the majority of these people that were lynched in the United States were wealthy black people. Now, there were some other uh, ethnic groups like Jewish people were lynched, Mexicans were lynched. But for the sake of this conversation, and New Americans in the United States, the majority of black people that were lynched, not all, but the majority, were either prominent or wealthy like Elmore Bowling. And one of the reasons that, because uh, last week and part of this week, we have been discussing the chess game, you know, triggered by the Kanye West statement. As uh, one of our callers, Riata Robinson, mentioned, the object of the game of chess is to catch the king, and the king is representative of the kingdom. And once you take that out, as uh, Josephine uh, Bowen McCall just mentioned, it's like overnight, almost, People can go from prosperity to poverty. So estate planning is basically taking a look at the future because here's what happened with, 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 the, with the Bowling family. Here's some terms that we need to get become aware of if we're not already aware of. Generational wealth. In other words, generating enough wealth and having everything in place where 300 years from now, you have descendants that will have a roof over their head, debt-free, and have a job. Elmore Bowling achieved that, he and his wife achieved that by the time he was 39. All right. So taking a look at, and then taking a look at what could, what if, all right, there are two, two scenarios, if and when, all right, for instance, lynching, and there are different ways to lynch people, all right? Taking a look at 
the worst-case scenarios that can happen to you and yours and having a plan in place to neutralize anybody trying to attract your family estate, and then you can still prosper. Now, one of those ways, and if Warren Houston's listening, press one, one of those ways is what you know, estate planning is, uh, and it's a concept called control versus ownership. I'm, I'm taking this McCall that everybody knew your family owned these businesses. Am I correct? Yes. All right. So taking a look at, you know, that life, and you're setting up, when you're doing your estate planning, set things up there on the public records and even in everyday life, nobody knows you and your family own those businesses. You can set up various different types of trusts, uh, trust accounts, uh, and then that, and never admit to own. Well, of course, once you transfer everything into a trust or a corporation or whatever, then you can basically say, "Well, I, I just work it." And people, the, the hate factor, the jealousy factor, will d- dramatically go down. Uh, before I go to the phone line, some people, if you want to talk to and ask uh, Josephine uh, Bowen to call in questions, the live uh, call into the, call, the, the studio number and press one. Um, is six one nine seven six eight two nine four five. Before we do go to the phone lines, um, you guys had a school down there too. Am I correct? Oh, before you even answer that question, her father, her family built this and had this going on during the Jim Crow era. So as you heard me say on this program before. We don't have, if they can do that during Jim Crow era, we don't have any excuses, not by its mild standards, in 2018 and beyond. We just, zero. I don't want to hear it. Because, particularly the African American. We cannot afford the luxury of an excuse. We cannot afford the luxury of victimhood. We can't afford it. Uh, now, there was a school down there. Tell us, tell us about the school. The school was a public school, but it was built in 1883 by a former slave who eventually became a member of the House of Representatives. We started the Elmo Boland Foundation in 2008, and that school has been donated to the foundation, and we're planning to restore and repair that school. It is on the state register of historic places, and on the National Register. So we are seeking donations to uh, restore that place, and we're going to use it for an educational center and also a museum to house um, uh, properties that associate with with that era. So we are seeking donations for that. How can they uh, get the... Get donations. Give us your website and uh, any other information so they can do it. Okay, the website is bowlingfoundation.org. That's B O L L I N G foundation.org. And there um, is a place where you can look at the school to see the, um, the condition of it and also donate and 
designate the funds for the school. So we would appreciate any uh, donations that will assist us in restoring the school. Two questions. Who built the school and how many rooms were in the school? It was built by uh, a former slave. It had it started off as a two-room school, and at the time it was built, it was the only school building in Lowndes County for blacks, and it had it was named for the town, the Lowndesboro School. Most of the schools back then were plantation schools, and they were known by the names of the owner of the plantation. So this school was unique in that it was named for the city. This school received funds from the Freedmen's Bureau uh, to repay the slave for building the school. The school first operated for 15 years within the church. This former slave was a minister, and he started a couple of churches in Lowndes County, and that's where the school first began. And then this was a very wise businessman himself. His name was Dr. Mansfield Tyler. He started the Lowndesboro Colored Education Association. That just about blew my mind to know that in the 1800s, there was a Lowndesboro Colored Education Association. And this Dr. Mansfield Tyler is also the person who helped start Selma University. And many of you probably have heard of Selma University. It was a school that was created to make sure that our black men knew how to preach the gospel and teach the gospel. And, of course, it was for educational purposes as well, other educational purposes as well. But that school was built in 1883, and if you take a look at it on the website, you can see that it was very solidly built. And we have to follow the guidelines of the um, housing and secretary of the housing interior for restoring and repairing old buildings. We just can't put new things in it. We've got to uh, repair as much as we can, and then we can only buy when we cannot repair. I see. Tell us about the, the, the plantation schools. Uh, I mean, what did they teach and that type of thing? The plantation schools were were founded by the plantation owners, and of course, you know, they operated based on the hours that the plantation owner wanted them to, and uh, they were usually one-room schoolhouses and taught all grades as well until in Lowndes County they finally started a school uh, 9 through 12, but there were at least 50-some plantation schools. We never could find it documented anywhere where the plantation owners were actually given funds for those schools. We could not find that documented. But inasmuch as each one tried to have a school on his plantation, lets us know that there were some funds coming in for that. But that that's the difference in the plantation school and the Lounsboro school. That's interesting. We're going to have to do some study and uh, a podcast on that topic alone. Plantation schools because with the plantation schools, the uh, the owner of that plantation basically can indoctrinate uh, the students to their way of thinking or, or life or, or what have you. 
Uh, if anybody has any questions to ask, I guess, uh, all right, we'll get them back. Uh, call 619-768-2945 and just press 1, and then uh, we can pass you into the conversation. We're speaking today with uh, Josephine L. I mean, Josephine Bowling McCall, who was the youngest uh, daughter of uh, Elmore and Bertha Bowling, uh, who were wealthy, wealthy uh, business people uh, in uh, Alabama, and uh, Elmore Bowling, uh, due to the fact that. Um, I guess he was killed because he was too successful. Um, That's why he's not here. So uh, if you have any questions of her directly, you can uh, just press 1 if you're already in the studio, uh, or just call 619-768-2945, press 1, and then we'll we'll patch you into the the conversation. In addition... um, this podcast, because we're doing a live stream right now, after the live stream, you can listen to this podcast over as many times as you want by calling. We can do it two ways. You can go to Blog Talk Radio and um, look for It's My House or, or Solar Landlord, and you can just click on it, and then you'll, you can play it back to your, any computer or phone or tablet that you might have. Or you can call our podcast station at 712 712- Four three two eighty eight sixty three. That's seven one two four three two eighty eight sixty three. And in this pocket, you can play it back as many times as you want. I think if you put seven or nine, you can fast forward or rewind on it. Uh, and that those usually. So this podcast will be gone for twenty four hours uh, after we uh, conclude the live stream for the day. Uh, once again, we do have people in studio. They're listening. If you have any questions, just press one, and I, I know Pat you in. Uh, I think we lost one of them because we were, at least I was, you know, kind of long with it. Uh, now the uh, in Alabama, you there's mention of um, there's a lynching museum. Could you share with us? Uh, is it open yet? And what are some of the things that you might expect to be there? Yes, the lynching memorial um, for peace and justice, as it's called, and the Legacy Museum open April 26th. Now, the memorial has about 800 molten steel replicas hanging from the ceiling to represent the lynchings, of course. And uh, there are two of those monuments that are identical. And the one is lying in what they call the memory garden. My father's name appears on the Lowndes County um, cenotaph, as it's called. And when the county that the lynchings took place in decides that it wants to reconcile uh, and take uh, responsibility for what it has done, that county can go and retrieve the one that's on the ground 
uh, in the garden and take it to that county and and uh, place it where it chooses. So that that's the purpose of the two uh, with the identical information on it. And each one will have the names of all identified lynch victims. And there were many times they knew people were lynched, but they did not know the names. So they would they have unknown in the date of the lynchings. The museum uh, goes from slavery to mass incarceration. And it has the soil of lynch victims in there. So if one goes there, you'll find my father's soil that the family collected on display. Also, it has in its displays actually from slavery when we were brought over on slave ships all the way to now how, and I heard this on the show this morning, how we've gone to mass to being uh, incarcerated and how difficult it is for the black man, unless he's extremely wise, to avoid being incarcerated. And one of the main factors involving incarceration is poverty. Uh, according to Stevenson's research, 97% of the people who are incarcerated never had a trial. And the reason they didn't have a trial was because they were poor and couldn't afford a lawyer. So just think, all of the millions that are in jail now, I think it's over three, close to four million or more, 97% did not have a trial. So when you come to Montgomery, you come to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and also come to the Legacy Museum. Okay. Let's go to our phone lines now. Area code 346, your mic is open. Yeah, good morning, L.A. Good morning, I want. Okay, I was just uh, chiming in from the request there I got this morning because i kind of been in and out didn't have heard everything, but I heard of the, the lady speaking about uh, property that was lost and uh, people being in prison, 97% of people in prison. Uh, the first thing I can say, of course, on Warren Houston, this is from the People's Law Study Group, is that uh, it is always good, and we as a people need to learn when it comes to business, to own nothing and control everything. Own nothing and control everything. And we do that by way of trust. And sometimes it's hard for us as a people to to wrap our heads around the family because a lot of us don't have anything. So when we get it, we want to grasp it and put it. We want to be able to say it's mine. But the truth and reality is that we all die. So you want to pass it on anyway. So when you put when you put your business is in trust, in irrevocable trust. It can be taken taken away from you because it's not yours to give. Although you are the trustee of that trust, you do not own it. The trust is its own entity, and that's one way of protection uh, that we talk about at the People's Law Study Group is through trust. And I heard the lady say 97%, and I, and I can believe that, and I can I agree with that because most of us plea bargain. We've talked about that. I don't know if you remember L.A. We've talked about that on several occasions where I told 
people that you yeah. could actually shut down the whole judicial system if everybody quit taking plea bargains. It would just it would just just shut it completely down because they don't have the capacity to handle uh, uh, that kind of, of reaction. If everybody said, you know, we're not going we're not going to settle, we're not going to take plea bargains, we're going to fight this thing to the, it would just shut it completely down. But people go in so easily and they take plea bargains. People are so scared of the system. I've even known people who were innocent of certain charges. They were so scared to fight that they went on and pled guilty for a lesser charge and still walked around with a probation or something because they were too scared to fight the system. And that's the sad thing uh, about it because the reality of it, what most people don't realize, the laws are really in favor of the people. They they were written that way. They are written that way. But the problem is if we don't know the law, as we say, if you don't know your rights, you don't have any rights. And the government, if you understand the history of what the founding forefathers of this country, they told you that the government was the enemy. That was the whole point of the American Revolution. That was the whole point of the first ten amendments being put into the Constitution to protect the citizen from Government to protect the citizen from government, and this lady has even brought out another point that you bring up all the time. L.A. is racism is a byproduct of what's really going on. The most black people that were lynched in this country, it wasn't because of their race; it was because of money. It was because of wealth, and those things were taken and stolen from us. So we need to learn to protect ourselves. And uh, you know, that, that's my comment. Okay, thank you, Juan. Now, it, uh, did you hear when uh, Miss McCall was, because uh, she's the youngest child of Elmore and Bolivar Bowling, did you hear the, um, the the businesses that the family owned? Did you hear that part of the, uh, yeah. the podcast? Well, I heard it was several right. businesses. I don't, don't they, remember exactly how many. Yeah, yeah they're essentially, you may as well call it bowling, bowling industries. Because basically they, they had all this going on. Any suggestions on on how to well set that up with trust uh, so outsiders uh, or competitors because that's what it seemed. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Mr. McCall, the person who shot your father, was he ever tried and convicted? Of course not. Uh, the county lounge decided to prevent my father's murder from looking like a lynching. Lincolns had become very unpopular then, uh, partly because of the research and efforts of Ida B. Wells Barnett, and because they had uh, an agency had formed called the Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching, and they had been into Lowell's County and proved that a man that was lynched in Fort Deposit was supposed to have raped someone's wife, but it was actually because the businessman did not want to pay him $80 that he owed him. So Lowndes County did not want anybody to come in and investigate. So the Lincoln definition at the time my father was murdered was three or more people. So Lowndes County arrested one person, which was an anomaly in itself. Whites were not arrested for killing blacks, and whites were not arrested for killing whites in Lowndes County. Lowndes County was known as Bloody Lowndes. But to ask you a question, they arrested one person, and, of course, he was not even indicted. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a whole different podcast on getting political. I'm just curious, what... 
what what year are we talking? What era are we talking? My father was released in 1947. Oh, 1947. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And the um, the museum and uh, memorial that we uh, talked about earlier is, is uh, from 1877 to 19. So wow. that's the okay. era that's included in in the National Memorial Museum. Okay. Did I hear you, are you, you from Montgomery? Oh, I was born in Lyons County. Uh, we fled to Montgomery two years after my father was lynched because we were fearing that my grandfather was going to be lynched. So I've lived in Montgomery ever since. And, yes, I did write a book. The title of the book is The Penalty for Success. My father was lynched in Lyons County, Alabama. Hmm. Wow. No, oh, wow. how can my, we get my, a copy of that book? How can we get a copy of the book? Oh, I have a website, and the name of the website is the name of the book, PenaltyForSuccess.com. PenaltyForSuccess.com. And you can get it from the website. All right, well, that's that's one of my purposes I'm gonna have to get. Um, now, do you you offer? Do you give? I mean, do speaking engagements, workshops, anything like that? Because you, see, I'm I'm looking at this from two. Well, there's a lot of ways you can look at this, but I, I'm gonna put it out there again: the, the, the Elmore and Bertha School of Business. Because I mean, there's so much there. And we just don't see examples of that. Um, I mean, they're out there, but we don't see it. We see more examples of Asian families, uh, you know, in business. But um, so you know, do you give workshops, talks, or, or what? I self-published the book in 2015, and I have been on book tours uh, Boston, Detroit, and Texas, several places, and uh, I've just been invited to go to one 2019 in California. So I go if I'm invited, and uh, I have been in several symposiums. And one recent one that was very interesting, it was entitled Complicity and Bystanderism, in Nazi Germany and the Jim Crow South. And in that particular symposium, I was interviewed as the daughter of a lynch victim, and the other lady was a Holocaust survivor. So that was a very, very interesting one. So I've been participating in uh, different workshops. In fact, the Elmo Bowling Foundation worked with the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project of Northeastern University School of Law. And we had three conferences in Alabama, one in Birmingham, Tuskegee, and Selma. And we actually look for lynch victim survivors to uh, have truth and reconciliation in regards to their deceased family members. 
So that's a major project of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project, which is being headed by Dr. Margaret Burnham, who is a professor at Northeastern University School of Law. Okay. Um, we got a bunch of people in the studio. If, you, if any of you want to uh, chime in, now you can ask. You can ask uh, Josephine Bowling McCall direct. Uh, any questions or comments you might have? Uh, anybody listening online? There's a bunch of listening online too. Let's call six one nine seven six eight two nine four five and then press one, and that that way you know you want to get in on the uh, the conversation. Warren, any, um, well, I guess you can organize a workshop on this one. Um, yeah, I, I would love to. I'd just like um, to ask her because she, a lot of people she's from the Montgomery. I'd just like to ask her because she's from the Montgomery area. Uh, my, my, actually, my mentor, the reason why I got a law degree, my mentor is actually from Montgomery. They grew up out there on the millages from uh, on any school road. I don't know if you know any of them, but... Uh, that's the reason why I have a law degree today. The Millages? Today. Yes. Um, no, I'm not familiar with the Millages. I'm I'm familiar with the the old school lawyers like uh, Lankford, C-S-E-A-Y-C, um, um, the one who did the case between um, the Bessis and Rosa Parks lawyer. Uh, out of Selma, so I'm familiar with the old school lawyers, but I don't know the millages. Yeah, well, I would definitely like to talk to you on uh, uh, about possibly doing a workshop with you here in Houston, Texas. I'm in Houston. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, and, and um, we like to bring you up. Uh, we got headquarters out in Oklahoma. Um, on that first audio I played, as the lady mentioned, uh, Ida B. Well, you know, mentioned, you know, through the Great Migration, um, and some, you know, set up uh, people like your father. Some, I mean, the skill sets they had, they set up their own townships and the infrastructure and everything. So, yeah, you you got some golden information. Um, I, how did I find out about you? I was listening to somebody's pod, not podcast. Uh, they were doing a live stream on Facebook. It was like the day before I called you. And uh, they mentioned your father. I said, well, that sounds interesting. So I, then I had to go online and look him up. And I was more intrigued. And then I looked up, I guess, I, your website and then sent you a note uh, from that point. Because um, fascinating story, but also representative of thousands of people. Uh, that happen to be black and wealthy, but nobody. That's the one thing I don't like about history books. Uh, most of the history books is they portray us as victims and poor. Well, you had a lot mm-hmm. of people that were wealthy, but they don't talk about yes. that part of it. So that's another reason why I like this story. The school, and I like to, you know you brought up the thing of the plantation. So with a plantation school, obviously. Master's going to indoctrinate you to his way of thinking. All right, whereas with you know the school that uh, your teacher started, it was you know it was a, a, a different ball game. That's why you know I'm looking at your parents; they were very literate, particularly when it comes to the business, and they were people literate. 
because you don't you don't get anywhere, particularly back then, uh, if you don't know how to handle people. Um, so they were very literate, and uh, that's why I keep on pushing for the birth in um, Elmore School of Business. Um, let's see. Once again, people, now, before she goes, we got a bunch of people in the studio. First one, if you got any questions, uh, well, Josephine uh, Bowling McCall uh, about uh, her father, Elmore Bowling, who was a lynching victim. Um, and that's what I call a real victim. So well, a lot of people well, how, running around the day, they're not victims. How, uh, Mr. McCall, how old were you at? Well, I just want to know how I, old were you at that time? I was five years old at the time, and fortunately, when I was about 35, a lady came to my mom's house with a clipping from the Montgomery Advertiser that detailed my father's death. I had never seen the article before, but it was well written. And it talked about the number of times my father had been shot, talked about the family, talked about the business, talked about when they were going to have the uh, the inquiry, uh, and talked about witnesses and the presence of another white man at the shooting. The article was very, very complete. And I had no idea when I began doing my research that I would find that my father was actually lynched. An article from the Chicago Defender that I found right after that described the murder as a lynching. So therefore, I started doing research to find out what a lynching was because my father was shot. And many people, even today, don't know that a lynching does not mention the type of murder. The person does not have to be hung to be lynched. A lynching is simply the number of people involved plus the person does not have due process. So once I got oh, the meaning of lynching, and then I did, did my wow. research and found out that my father me on something. Yeah. Yeah, you, me oh. too. Me too. So that, I'm that, a lawyer. You just educated me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're different wow. to lynch people in the courtroom. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. I, I was interested, and this was in something that I read. You know, the, the, the Scottsboro Boys, you remember that case? Well, uh-huh. yeah. one of the persons in the article, one of the lawyers, referred to the jury as a lynch mob. So that was that was really eye-opening to, for someone to refer to the jury in that case as a, actually being a, a lynch mob. Wow, yeah. Warren, we're going to have so to do a when road people talk about lynchings, pardon? I was saying, Warren, we got to make a trip to Alabama to meet you because not only are we learning, uh, because you know what? I think a lot of people today, just, just, just like the major distinction that you gave was we don't know, on a critical mass basis, we don't know what a lynching is and the different ways you can be lynched. So, yeah, we um, automatically think about being hung, you know. Right. Well, you know, you you brought in Ida B. Wells and those persons who were actually entrepreneurs. Now, if you look closely mm-hmm. at her cases, they were shot. They were not hung, but they were considered mm-hmm. lynched. 
So that's how uh, I began to look at very closely what a lynching is. And that's when no matter what you uh, research, you'll never find the type of murder included in the definition. The only thing is going to be that a mob, a mob usually three or more persons, and uh, uh, no due process. So Mega Evers was basically lynched. Exactly. Emmett Till. Emmett Emmett Till was put in the river, but he was lynched. So just think in terms of. Let me share with you uh, my, my, my spin on the Emmett Till case. I, the way I'm looking at the Emmett Till case was Emmett Till, because he had only been down there for four days when they did that to him. Emmett Till was used as a ruse. The intended target to be lynched was his uncle, um, I guess, what's his name, Moe? Uh, I'll just call him Uncle Moe. Because his uncle had 25 acres of land with a cash crop of cotton on it. So his, mm-hmm. aunt, his, his his aunt left. His aunt left and his cousins left. And they used to have a daily income off of that 25 acres, including his son. I mean, uh, Emmett Till's cousin. So after the uh, the trial, his uncle left the 25 acres behind and didn't even harvest the, uh, the cotton. And that was, in, in my opinion, that's the part of the story that nobody talks about. Yeah. They yeah. were, it was re- basically that they lynched Emmett, uh, like I say, as the rule, but they used that. I mean, I guess the de facto lynch uh, was his uncle, who was breathing a living, but he left everything, including the money behind. So, um, you know, that that's my take on the Emmett Till case. Yep. Sounds, well, sounds about right. Any to other me. things that you'd like to share with us before we close out for today? Uh, I'm interested in the uh, program that you're talking about because my foundation has decided that it needs to come up with uh, a cadre of young people and train them in the uh, attributes of my father to acquire. Uh, entrepreneurship and other things so you'll be helping me when you work out that program because that's the next thing on the foundation agenda oh no question and, and now Warren's already got something together with his uh well Warren to, to explain what you do uh, excuse me I'm sorry I have an organization which is the people's law study group and we educate people in the judicial system um, I also do, uh, we do trust and will, as I explain people, it's better to have a trust than a will. And there's several reasons why, and again, for protection, uh, as you was explaining your situation, um, a trust gives more protection because it takes it out of the person's name and gives it its own individuality. Uh, and the person only becomes the trustee of the trust. So even though it's yours, it's not yours, but you're controlling it. And when you when you do pass on the the uh, it doesn't have to go through probate. It's a private oh. setting. And see, this is the power behind having a trust as opposed to a will. People are running get wills, but once you have a will, it has to go through probate court. 
And I don't care what you left in that will. Someone can contest that will if they want to. And so then at that point, it's all tied up and money is lost, and you may even lose everything. But once you have a trust, it doesn't go, it doesn't even go to probate court at all. It's a private it's a private uh, setting between the trustee and the family, and whoever that the person that that's passed on left as a trustee, they will administer the trust and and issue out whatever's in the trust to those that are in inheritance of the trust. Very interesting. All right. Well, Warren, I'll, I'll pass the number to you. Here's another thing, uh, uh, Angle. There's so many angles to this school of uh, uh, the Bowling family. One of the re- uh, the big uh for me is well, not so much uh but realization is, and no disrespect to Martin Luther King, but the the Bowling family and a lot of other families that were lynched. You know, somebody in the family was lynched, and like I said, they were typically wealthy black people. They already made it to the promised land, at least financially. Okay, so what we have to get to is basically what you're talking about is, all right, once we've got it, or even before we get it, we have got to be educated on how to protect it, which you've been talking about, Warren. Yes. I think that's the stage that we're at right now. Because essentially, uh, the Boeing family, they did what Booker T. Washington was talking about. Yes. So they, they got the wealth. <laughs> Way before mm-hmm. Martin Luther King got on the radar, they, in my opinion, made it to the promise land. Now we've got to learn how to protect it. Definitely, right. And like I said, we also have to look at the different ways that we can be lynched. We can be lynched in the courtroom. We can be lynched, uh, and that's a whole other podcast in itself. Um, Police shootings, not getting involved or being absent from the criminal justice system. Because that's why I play that Claude Anderson piece practically every day. Because the first stage that Claude Anderson talks about is getting your money together by starting your own businesses and embassies. The Boeing family, what she laid out here was, you may as well call that Boeing industry. Yes. That's what that was, bowling industry. Okay. So the protector, you need to have that, you know, the information um, uh, that, uh, you know, both sides can give you the bowling, uh, uh, Ms. McCall can give you as well as you want. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to definitely get together. With, uh, you'll see me in Alabama. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can get together you know uh, together, Ellie. Right, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. We, we got to get together and do that because, I mean, like we like, got educated today on renting. Yeah, I, I just had a picture in my mind a rope, but it's so much more big. It's much more bigger than that. So, because you got things happening right today in plain sight where we're getting lynched, exactly. uh, but we don't know how to defend ourselves. So, uh, the, you know, the tools are out there to get an education. Uh, that's why I'm so glad, Mr. McCall, because we just talked a couple of days ago. So she's on here. So we're, we're going to have you on. Any other, promote your uh, website, foundation, and how we can get in touch with you, particularly on how people can donate money uh, Thank you. Uh, to the Bowl, uh, Elmore Bowling Foundation. Thank you. The name of the foundation is... Bowling 
foundation.org and that gives you a complete history about my father and um it talks about the school that we are trying to restore and preserve and you can make donations on that website for the school on the penalty for success website that's the one where you can order the book and that's penaltyforsuccess.com and you can also request that the book be autographed to you or to someone else. So please go to both websites. One, you'll learn more about my dad, the org, And then the book website is penaltyforsuccess.com. Mm. All right. Warren, any other, uh, anything you want to say before we uh, log out for today? I am grateful that you've given me the opportunity to let additional people know about my father because that was one of the main things that I was impressed with the lynching memorial that was built, the Memorial for Peace and Justice. My family has never been recognized as victims. So I want my father's story told as much as possible. In fact, I did have the the book with the publishing company at first, and fortunately my contract stated if we're not in print in two years, the rights returned to me. So in 2015, I got my rights back from the publisher and self-published the book because I wanted to get it out while I'm still alive. I'm 75 years old now, and I wanted to make sure that as many people in the world would know about this, and I thank you for the opportunity to share with your listeners. Okay, wait a minute. Before we go, we got another caller here. Uh, area code 352, your mic is open. Uh, good morning, L.A. It's Beata with Soul Purpose Healing. I just want to say thank you um, to your guest for sharing um, this amazing journey that she's been on. Um, I'm just feeling so blessed to hear about it and um i just wonder you know how you even overcame that trauma of your you know seeing your father uh killed like that i i had i wasn't listening to the whole show but i've been tuned in now and then so i just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story it really blessed me today to hear that thank you so much very good question How, how did you Overcome it. I see you're doing some proactive things, but I mean, how how did you handle it? Um, first of all, I was five when he was murdered, and the family shielded me from all of the trauma. The biggest trauma was I did get to see my father in the ditch when he was deceased with his eyes open, and of course, that's something mm, that mm, mm. I'll never forget. Um, the others of us did not even have counseling, and uh, I'm pretty sure that that was the reason for my third oldest brother's demise. Uh, he died in 2007. He was the one, when you read my book, you'll see, tried to take my father's boots off because there was a old wise tale that if you died with your boots on, you didn't go to heaven. So he was the one who tried to remove his boots, and as I mentioned, none of us had counseling, so I think that affected him probably more than any of us. Uh, so this 
has been a healing process for us to actually be able to talk about it because when it first happened, we went into hiding because we were afraid that uh, we too would be lynched after my grandfather had an altercation with some white men two years later. So that's how we located in Montgomery. We left Lowndes County fleeing for our lives. And what did your brother die of, the one you were just referring to? He actually died of leukemia, but he did have some mental problems before the leukemia was diagnosed. And I am not a medical doctor, but I do believe that some of the drugs that he was taking sort of influenced uh, the other illness because uh, mm. we had mm. no record of any any type of cancer in the family, and he died of leukemia. So, wow. of course, yeah. um, I, the, the, the mental problems he had, I believe, were directly related to my father's death. Yeah, that's, well, that's that's powerful. Now, what's the name of your book? The Penalty for Success. My father was lynched in Lyons County, Alabama. The Penalty for Success. Mm. And how do you spell your name? Well, give me your name again. My name is Josephine, J-O-S-E-P-H-I-N-E, Bowling. B-O-L-L-I-N-G, McCall, M-C-C-A-L-L. And my father was Elmore Bowling. Wow. Well, thank you again and bless you on the, the, the next part, in the next chapter of your journey. You've got a lot of things to share and teach, I'm, I'm sure. Thanks again. Thank you for calling That's me. I know one show podcast she, uh, she might need to get on is... Uh, Naima's uh, podcast, The Female Solution, which has got a bigger audience than I have, because uh, they, they really need to hear the story, um, particularly that lynch part. Uh, well, all of it, actually. All of it, actually. Um, okay, well, we're gonna, we're, I'm going to get together with Warner, and I want, I'm going to pass the information on to you, uh, uh, her information, plus uh, we'll get together and do a road trip. Uh, one last question for Lee from me. Uh, how far are you from uh, what Lowndes County, Alabama? Okay, Lowndes County probably is no more than um, twenty-five miles outside of the city limits of Montgomery. In fact, this is the best way I tell people, and I sort of enjoy saying this. Um, if you heard of the Selma to Montgomery march. 22 of those historic 54 miles are in Lowndes County. Viola Louiso was killed in Lowndes County. Jonathan Daniels, the white priest who came at the request of Martin Luther King, was killed in Lowndes County. So you cannot get from Selma to Montgomery on Highway 80 without going through Lowndes County. How are things, or here's the next question. Uh, now, how are things there today as far as, I guess, race relations? Uh, you have to think in terms of um, what SNCC came in and did for Lowndes County. Uh, Lowndes County was a predominantly black county, still is, and did not have a single registered voter until SNCC came in and 
they had the tent city and all of that. Um, so now all of the local officials of Lowndes County are black since they got the right to vote because, you know, they they have voted for black leaders. So, um, so that county has a, a black chief of police now and black judges? The only thing that is not black now are the um, the district judge, and uh, I believe that's it. And we have a black person running now for the district judgeship, but I have to admit that person's going to have a hard road to hoe because the white district judge is involved in the community, and he works well with black people. And it hurts in a way because you you feel that it's, you want to do it by the content of your character now, not by the color of your skin. So I don't think this right. black person is going to be. <laughs> so um, the race relations in, in both probably uh, maybe about probably better than in some of your northern cities because, you know, you're surprised when you hear about all of the race stuff that's undercover in the northern cities. So in many ways, the race relations here in Montgomery and Lowndes County are probably better. Now, we have returned to segregation in Montgomery. You know, we fought for integrated schools. All the schools are now black again. So the whites have run away uh, from the situation and uh, once again, we are faced with segregation uh, as we were before the 1954 Supreme Court decision. Thank you. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll have you back, um, and thank you. Uh, can't thank you enough for uh, calling in today for this this interview. And um, like I said, I'll pass your information on to Warren Houston here in a few moments, or minutes. Uh, Warren, anything you want to ask before we go? If you're still here. Well, he might not be here. All right, well, that's it. Thank you, uh, Ms. McCall, and thank you, everybody, for listening in the studio as well as on the Internet. And like I said, you can listen to a replay of this podcast uh, by calling 712 Four three two eighty eight sixty three about fifteen twenty minutes after we end this live stream and you can hear as much time as you want to by phone any phone on the globe because you got people listening in various parts of the world and uh, by going to blog talk radio. On that note, everyone have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much. Goodbye.